Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today you're going to hear me speak with Alan Haber. Besides being a public defender for over 30 years and a private practicing attorney, he was once a drug dealer. He carried a gun. He earned thousands of dollars a day illegally. Um, but following all those convictions, he turned his life around thanks to the help of some amazing people, including himself. And I think that just makes him an amazing story. His life is an amazing story because he talks candidly about how he got there and how he got out of there and the people that supported him in that process. And that's really what today's show is going to be all about. Um, If you like shows like this, subscribe to this podcast. Give this podcast a five-star rating wherever you listen to it. Um, Reach out to me at isthatreallylegal.com. Send me a note, and that would be a great thing to do. Um, I should tell you that in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, I just discovered an amazing dumpling place. You can get the dumplings either steamed or pan-fried. And the pan-fried are not greasy, my friends, and they have an assortment of all sorts of them. They, it's on Bergen Street, near Court Street, in, in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. And I don't know the name of the place, but it's not like there's a ton of dumpling places. So if you find yourself in Brooklyn, go to that place. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to what is an amazing interview with uh, Alan Haber. Alan Haber, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It is so great to meet you. Nice to be here. Now, just to be clear, you and I have never met before. We only met because a friend, a mutual friend, told me about you, thought you were fascinating, told me your story, and I literally didn't believe it. So I researched you, and I found a New York Times article about you from about six years ago read it and I was convinced I had to speak to you. So um, you've been an attorney for how long, by the way? Oh, since 1985. Right, wow. So you and I are similar in terms of our time at the bar. I started practicing- A lot later. (laughs) Yes, you were busy doing other things as we'll go into, Um, but we hung around the same area uh, at some points because I graduated law school in 86 just up the street from you at Cardozo on Fifth Avenue, and you went to NYU? Yeah. Now, for people who don't know, NYU is a top 10 law school, no question. And my first wife, <laughs> I've, I've collected a couple along the way um, and released some into the wild. Um, yeah, that's great. But in any event, um, I lived on NYU housing for a couple of years while my ex-wife was going to NYU law school with uh, John Kennedy Jr. around that time. So we were probably walking around Washington Square, <laughs> around each other, possibly. Um, yeah. So where did you grow up? Well, that's a difficult question because I was in foster care until I was 12 and I was jockeyed around to eight or nine different foster homes over a period of probably about eight or nine years. Was that in the greater New York City area? 
not necessarily. I was in Long Island and Lake Ronkonkoma for mm. four years, and then I was kind of kicked around uh, different areas of Queens uh, and Long Island. Uh, we could probably, I'm yeah, sorry. Generally in those days, uh, it may still be so, uh, people generally took in children temporarily, mostly because of the financial, uh, you know, uh, benefit. They were clothing, you know, money and uh -huh. food money and, and recreation money, none of which the child would get. So you're saying they weren't particularly interested in you and your development as a human being. They saw you as extra income. Exactly. Was it obvious to you as a kid that that was the situation? I don't think so. I don't think I came to that realization until I got a lot older. But the reality was that I was in homes where if their child went to bed early, I would have to go to bed early, even if I was older. Mm -hmm. You know, because that was the rule. Uh, I was 16 before I ever celebrated a birthday party. I never had a birthday party. Right. And in fact, I threw my own party. <laughs> and that was the first birthday party I ever had. <laughs> wow. Um, at some point, did you graduate high school on time? No. Uh, I went to a Catholic high school when I was about, 12 years old, maybe 11, I don't remember exactly. Uh, the home that I was in, I fell out of a tree and I broke my arm and I was not working very well. So they didn't want me there anymore. So my mother was kind of forced to take me home with her. She had when no you, alternative. When you say your mother, do you mean your biological mother? Biological mother, yeah. Who yeah. I met, uh, well, I never really met until I was probably about five. I, I didn't even know I had a mother. Uh, in the early years until I got a little older. Uh, uh, it, it, as a matter of fact, I've, you know, I've been working on a book for 50 years now. Everybody's working on a book. Uh, yeah, but you've got a really, you've got a story that rivals a Dickens novel. I mean, you, you've got some really interesting stuff to talk about because I, and, and before we get too deep in, wow, that's crazy or that's sad or whatever. I want people to know I'm talking to you. You're in a lovely place. You have a beautiful dog, a beautiful home. You're married. You have kids. You have what I consider a very successful career. So what I'm going to ultimately talk about is how you started out from, let's just call humble beginnings, and became uh, a very celebrated uh, and successful criminal defense attorney which was, I mean, you have to admit, that's a pretty big adventure. That makes a great movie. It, uh, yeah, except that they're not investing in movies unless it's about uh, superstars. You, know, you don't consider yourself a superhero? Not unless they have special powers. I don't have special powers. Well, we'll see. We'll see by the end of the interview. I think people are going to disagree with you. But ultimately, at some point, you graduated high school. Which Catholic, was a Catholic high school, you said? No, I, I graduated. I, I actually graduated grammar school. And at the time, I was, my name is Haber, Jewish, obviously. Mm. I went to a Catholic school and I was the Christ killer. So for three years, all I did was fight Catholics. <laughs> Anyway, it taught me how to fight. So at least in jail, I was a better fighter. <laughs> but uh, 
one of the nuns was just brutal and uh, she used to hit me all the time and make me stand in a corner. And some of them were very nice and I did very well in those classes. But uh, one day she took a swing at me and I had had enough and I caught her hand and prevented her from hitting me. And she ultimately tried to have me expelled. Uh -huh. They didn't expel me, but what they did was they allowed me to graduate because my grades were so good. They allowed me to graduate, but not with the class. So gotcha. I have no class picture. I have nothing. I do have all the only thing I have is a is a you know a diploma, whatever that is. Right. And um and high school I never went to. I, I, I dropped out of school because it was terrible. I was going to Charles Evan Hughes and you know it was crazy. The school was that it was ridiculous. Where was that located? That was down in the down near the old Barney's. Remember the old Barney's down in Seventh Avenue and Seventeenth Street. Yeah, it was down around in that. Chelsea. It was a yeah. big public school. Now, the reason I didn't go to a Catholic high school was because they blackballed me because of the incident I had with that nun. I wanted to go to Cardinal Hayes. You would um, think that the yesh a yeshiva would have taken you in, and you would have been. You know, he fought a nun. Well, you didn't fight a nun. You prevented a nun from punching you. I would think that some people would consider you a hero. Well, understand, my mother was Catholic. My mother's Italian. Ah. So when I went to live with her, I was raised Catholic. Your dad was Jewish. When I was in Jewish foster homes, no one raised me Jewish. Got it. I was just a body with money, you know. Right. <laughs> right. Fact, when I was in Long Island, she had eight or nine kids, and we were all working on the farm. Wow. This is incredible. Like I, like I said, this sounds like a Dickens tale. But at some point, and the reason what makes that makes you particularly of interest for this podcast, and by the way, if anybody is concerned about my remarks about nuns or anything, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com, leave me a message, I will happily uh, get into it with you about all of that stuff. But in any event, you at some point, uh, decided that the rules and the law were not for you. And you, for better, lack of a better term, uh, got involved in a life of crime. Is that right? I think I kind of drifted that way and it never should have happened uh, because I was not stupid. I got good grades in school. You know, I was not, I didn't have a crazy personality. Uh, it just never should have happened. But I was pretty much a latchkey kid. My, my mother worked seven days a week. She made no money. We lived in a room that was slightly larger than a cell with a bathroom in the hallway. She really was not equipped to be a mother, you know? Right. And I don't hold it against her. She had a hard life. You know, uh, she had a very hard life. She basically never talked to my brother and sister. She pretty much didn't want anything to do with them but I wouldn't allow her to throw me out of her life. And so she and I did have a relationship. Did that like, did that relationship last for a long time? Until she died. You know, I mean, I don't think she knew how to be normal. Like most people, she never ate in a restaurant. You know, she went to work, went home, watched TV, read a book, no social life, never ate out, worked at a restaurant as a waitress. Uh, you know, uh, and got along on nothing, basically. How, how old were you when she passed? 
I was probably in my 40s. I think I had already been, I had already become a lawyer and I was living around the corner from her. She was living on 76th Street in between Riverside and West End. Wow. And I, I was on well. 77th Street on Riverside Drive, married to a judge. <laughs> well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> um, so, look, I'm going to get straight to it. At some point, you were involved in the sale of what we delightfully call controlled substances, specifically heroin. Is that accurate? Yes. Can you hear me being a lawyer? (laughs) Uh, I was was a heroin addict for about 15 years. Wow. You You seem to suffer no ill effects. Back when I was first a lawyer in New York, I worked in landlord tenant court. And I saw, a, this was the early 80s or mid 80s, I saw a tremendous amount of heroin addicts, but even more methadone addicts. And they looked really bad. They had a lot of trouble with cognitive function. I'm just going to be honest. They were sleepy, unintelligent. And it was pretty clear it was from the fact that they were either on something or they were, as people would call it, dope sick. They needed something. And um, you do not look like anyone who has ever done an illegal substance beyond, I don't know, a sinus medication. I know people are shocked. I mean, you know, listen, who I was then and who I am now are two different people. I spoke differently. My affect was differently. You know, I wore the hat I had to wear to survive. Right. And, And did you become a dealer as a matter of course of being a user? Yes. And ultimately, not an excuse um, for it, by the way. No, I, I know. By the way, I, there has yet to be a time in this conversation that you are not completely taking responsibility for everything, which I think is a very valuable point to be made here. Is that while you certainly didn't enjoy the things that happened to you, I don't get a sense of victimhood from you. I get a sense that you made some choices. You're clear about your choices. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put any words in your mouth. But ultimately, you ended up going to prison as a result of the choices you made, right? How many years do you think you spent in prison? Well, I think throughout my addiction, uh, most of the time I spent was in jail. And, you know, the, the friend that I have that kind of helped turn me around, uh, said to me, you weren't a very good criminal. <laughs> the reality is that I got seven years, four years, and three years. And the separation of time between them was never more than six months. Yeah, because you were not a great criminal. Almost that entire amount of time I was in jail. You know, I mean, but when I was younger, I wasn't in jail all the time because I was using and getting arrested for stupid things like breaking into a car or possession of a narcotic drug or a hypodermic needle or stupid things. So you have a lot of time for that. Right, right. What, um, hey, you know, when I lived in the village and I had just graduated law school, I had a old Dodge Dart that got broken into a few times by drug addicts, I'm convinced, because who's breaking into a 72 Dart you know, they stole a $50 radio once that they ripped out of the dashboard. You have to be high to really need that. And they tried to steal the battery, but the cables were so rusted 
they couldn't <laughs> get the battery out of the car. So, I mean, yeah. So, so which prisons did you find yourself in? Well, I've, I've been to Sing Sing. I've been to Danamora. I've been to Greenhaven. I've been to Fishkill. So people know Sing Sing technically is Ossining. And um, it's known as Sing Sing because, uh, well, it, it, it was, is that the highest security level prison that you were in? No, actually, uh, Danamore is a maximum uh, security prison and Greenhaven is as well. Oh, uh, um, gotcha. So I think most of them were. Uh, I went to one work release facility in Fishkill and that was not a maximum, that was a minimum security. So, gotcha. Was, look, everybody watches movies about prisons. Um, I have not been in a lot of New York prisons. I've been in a lot of Massachusetts prisons as a result of my practice. I've never, I've never been sentenced. Uh, I've never been convicted of a crime. But I go into prisons as a matter of course, and I've been to everything from low level to super high security. And for people who don't go, that I just don't think they have any idea of what prison is like regardless of how high tech the facility may be or how low and ancient they may be. We're, huh, I don't even know how to ask about this. Um, the adjustment to prison life, uh, it's a very different, I would assume it's a very different type of life and there are rules and you gotta learn them and you gotta get to know how to get along with people or not. I mean, what were the biggest adjustments for you? I'll let you tell it since I wasn't there. Well, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have to make a lot of adjustments because every prison I went to, I had a lot of friends. So we all hung out together. We all shot dope together. You know, we committed crimes together. So uh, if you showed up at an institution, you had a care package waiting for you, with cigarettes and something to eat and something to read. But, you know... Uh, that may sound cool for some people, you know, and oh yeah, life is easy in jail, but it's all the baggage that around that, that is the problem and staying out of that uh, spotlight. What was the hardest part of doing time? Uh, the hardest part is when you have to do damage to somebody in order to get self-respect. So you, it, that old story about, you know, finding the big guy and punching him in the nuts or whatever. Not only if he does something that that it calls for it, you know. Right. But you get challenged in there. You get challenged, but after somebody sees you go to work on somebody, they, they, you don't get challenged again. It's over. So I it just so, how, how brutal you can be, you know. Right. And, and I think what's so fascinating is as I look at you, you look like you'd be an, you could be an uncle of mine. You know, a nice old Jewish guy who was a lawyer and, you know, behind him, as I'm looking at you, you've got a sweet dog on a couch and a printer <laughs> and like nobody would know, like this guy could handle himself. You better be careful. He could kick your ass. And he's done it more than a few times. Well, they would know if I opened my mouth. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. You know, survival has been something that I've had to learn quite well in order to get wherever it is I am. Right. And I've gotten very good at it. <laughs> well, what I think is interesting is that you have those skills. You never lose them. But now I want to flash forward a little bit to getting out and deciding to go to college and law school. 
what 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 took you from because you could have easily been a lifelong criminal i mean it's not hard once you're in that track to follow that track i've had clients it's obvious to me unless there's a miracle that's going to happen that's just what they're going to do they're either going to die in prison or on the street but they are not going to go to college and law school so for you something must have happened that you said I'm going to college, and there was a shift. What was that? Well, the shift for me was really, it, it, it didn't happen quickly. It happened slowly. And on my last case, 1972, I was arrested by kind of an organized crime task force that uh, combined with pro- parole officers and narcotic cops and they had bugs in my car and you know they they I had an apartment in Brooklyn they knew about it they bugged my I had a red Cadillac convertible <laughs> they bugged my car way to be way to be intimate way to be on, yeah way to be on the down low there <laughs> yeah <laughs> they All followed right. me to Manhattan uh, uh-huh. to my stash house because they didn't know it was my stash house and when I came out of the house I had an apartment on the east side in the 70s Mm-hmm. Uh, when I came out, I had an attache case in my hand uh, and a gun in my belt <laughs> and about a, a quarter of a, maybe a quarter of a kilo of cut narcotics, whatever it was. So you, uh, you I managed were... to get away with, I, I managed to get rid of the gun. Uh, somehow they didn't find it, you know, during the scuffle. But the drugs I did not get rid of uh, and ultimately got charged with that. And, you know, I was looking at a lot of time. That's when Rockefeller drug laws were just getting ready to come into effect. They had not yet been, the statute I think had been passed, but it had not yet officially become law. So I wasn't looking at life. So I really knew this was my last shot. Right, just for people. For people who don't know, and this is true for a lot of things, the law changes not really seems to have much more to do with political impact than anything to do with the efficacy of laws. Whether the laws work or not, that's a whole other conversation. But when certain people get into political power in order to keep it or they make promises to get into political power, they're going to be tough on fill in the blank. And at that time, I was a kid uh, living on Long Island. Um, They were going to be tough on drug dealers because they were convinced that drug dealers were the problem, or they certainly convinced the people who elected them that drug dealers were the problem. So they had crazy laws even for marijuana, let alone heroin or cocaine. When I mean crazy, I mean very harsh sentences. It's hard to look at it now given how we have decriminalized, if not legalized, marijuana, just as an example, kids don't, kids have no idea how marijuana could really be a problem for people, even in small amounts. But anyway, I don't want to get too far afield. So you had, pardon the expression, a bit of a come to Jesus moment when you saw this might be your last shot? Well, what happened was when I got to the tombs, I went to the ninth floor. That was the floor where drug addicts went to detox. And in those days, they didn't have methadone. You detox cold turkey in a cell with two or three other guys and threw up on each other. And oh, it was just a nightmare. 
<laughs> a nightmare. Yes. They had three or four in a cell, and these cells are not too big. <laughs> you know, and you were forced to be with people with the DTs, you know, recovering from drunk being alcoholics. Uh, it was filthy. There were mice, and there were, the food was fat back and pigtails, you know, with beans. Uh, with not a lot of compassion. Still on the tails, in your plate. I mean, hair, hair still on the tail? Hair on the pig, tail. I mean, it was disgusting. The conditions were disgusting. And they had us locked in cells. Uh, they had us locked in cells 24 hours for some point. And they weren't giving people cigarettes. And at that time, now nobody smokes in jail. But in those days, everyone did. And everyone was going just crazy, you know. Uh, but at that time, when, when I went in for the last time, it was also around the time when there was the Muslim riots in prison. Oh, yeah. And I was involved. I was in the middle of that. That was in 1970, I think. By the time I came back in 72, they had assigned a woman to deal with the controversies that caused the riot in the tombs, where they closed down the tombs for a while. Then they built another whole building. And then they opened some of the blocks. And there was a woman there that was a clergy volunteer. Her name was Sandra Smith, Sandra Lewis Smith. And she was a little tiny petite thing and probably wasn't even five feet tall, but she used to help inmates by reaching out to their families, by talking to them about if they were addicts like me, possibility of getting into drug treatment, by uh, you know trying to set up visits for them, make sure that they get money for commissary, she was just a, a, a nice, selfless human being. Fast forward, she had a tremendous impact on my life and ultimately retired as a commissioner of the Department of Corrections. So you can see what I'm dealing with here, what level of intellect wow. I'm dealing with here, right? So Sandy got me into her office one day, and at the time, I was hanging out with wise guys. That's what I did. Sonny Red and Delicato, who was a, a captain in the one of the crime families, he and I were like best friends. <laughs> you know, he was helping me do my appeal, uh, you know. Uh, and one day I got called down by Sandy. I don't remember exactly how I got the message, but I went down and she went down and she said, you know, I've been looking at your record. You've never been in treatment. You have a heroin addiction. You've just, you just kicked your habit. You know, why don't we try to get you into a program? You shouldn't be going back to jail. And so I got involved in that. And I had a friend from California, John Maha, who uh, he and his wife uh, started a program there called the Lancy Street Foundation, which, in my opinion, is probably the best drug treatment program in the country. And by the way, I don't think very highly of drug treatment programs. <laughs> the Lancy Street, I do. I think they're complete failures, and we can get into that later. I have a different way of treating addiction. I think the current treatment model, models that we have are ridiculous. Also, alcoholism. I mean, if you think about it for a second, they both have 90% failure rates. Mm. Alcohol programs and, and drug programs. And yet we continue to throw money at them. Something wrong with that picture. Well, let me, let, let's take a side, sideways step to that. Are you, you're not advocating for no treatment, are no. you? No, what are, and, I'm what not, and I'm not advocating, by the way, for doing away with current treatment. What I am doing is advocating for uh, think, think tanks to talk about alternative models. I know there are models that work. 
These models don't work. I worked with kids for 18 months. They were violent kids before I became a lawyer. And I didn't have a single kid get busted again. 18 months. I'm talking about violent kids. Right. So how come I could do that? And the system could never do that. These kids go in and out like doors. Right. And I, and most of them, and I have people that I have had such success with that they become doctors or lawyers. Uh, it, it, amazing, overcoming. I had a friend, but it recently passed away that came to me when I was a counselor. He was a heroin addict. And this kid turned into a world-class doctor. He just recently passed away. Oh, so it, it, it's the ability to be able to see the good in people, to nurture the good in people. It's about it's about giving someone self-esteem who never had it. Well, it sounds like this woman who reached out to you. Did that for me. Yeah. And um, you ran with it. Because not um, only did I ran, run with it, but I also created models with it. Well, you went to was was the next step for you to go to college or um, what was uh, next? I went upstate. I had not yet had my um, high school diploma. I had a, I had a uh, GED. Mm -hmm. But for me, a GED is just paper. Right. Uh, I wanted a Regents diploma. Got so it. Sandy, my friend Sandy said, well, we didn't get the program. That's another whole story. It would take hours to explain that to you. But I ended up getting a seven-year sentence. And when I went upstate, I wanted to go to school. And they had no school, high school. Mm. So what I did was, Sandy said, why don't you write the Department of Education in Albany and ask them to send in a proctor to allow you to take the exams? By the For program. people who don't know, what you're talking about is the Regents exams. Yes. You have to pass a certain number of these Regents exams, which are state um, standard exams in various subjects. And only when you've passed these can you get what's known as a Regents diploma. I just happen to know a lot of people at the Department of Ed. So just for people who don't know what that means, I just want to be clear. So and you actually, diploma. I mean, you really yeah. need to study for this. <laughs> Absolutely. Those exams are not easy. Oh. I mean, you, you know, and I'm talking about in geometry and algebra and different languages and sciences. These are serious exams. Yes. So I managed to do that in my cell just by getting the textbooks, following the curriculum, completing it, and then asking the proctor to come in. They came in, I took the exam, and I got my, I finally got my Regents diploma. So at the time, I was very obsessed with study uh, and reading. Uh, I got very involved in reading. Uh, and I knew that it was time for me to like get out of, you know, stop doing what I was doing. So I stopped hanging out with my friends and I was working. Ultimately, I got into a program in Greenhaven. It was a therapeutic community and they sent only certain inmates there. Uh, it was a, supposed to be like a drug treatment program, but it really wasn't. They had some counselors there and you know, they had groups and you would earn credits and stuff like that that would help toward your release. Now, I had never made parole before. And while I was there going to school, I was getting straight A's. And all of the inmates in the program with me were cheating on the exams and passing. And they were trying to hand it to me. And I said, I don't think you get it. I want out right. of this fucking life. This isn't about getting out on parole. I right. want a life. 
I want a life. Right. You know, and so I would study and I would get them right and they say, oh, what are you stupid? How could you do that? But in the meantime, now they now they bow down to me, you know, they genuflect. Mm. <laughs> you know, now they say we should have done it like you did it. But it, then they said, you're an idiot. You have a felony record. No one will ever hire you. You'll never get a job. You're going to be a dope fiend all your life. Right. If that's what you want to believe. Then that's what you believe. And that's who you become. You know, so anyway, Sandy gave me a sufficient amount of self-esteem to make me want to change my life. And changing it wasn't easy. You know, it was not easy. And doors didn't open for me right away. It took a while. I did have some friends, high-powered friends, because I was responding in a way that indicated I was going to change my life. Right. You were acting in a way that they saw, oh, it's different. He's really going to follow through. I mean, you know, when you're out a year and you're doing well and you let, I was at the time, I think I was a president of the Fortune Society and I was doing lectures in local colleges when I came out. Uh, you know, I was, all I was doing was criminal justice. I didn't know anything else. Right. Well, it was your life. Just I didn't know anything else. It was my life. Yeah. So uh, eventually I got into the college program at Duchess, which is connected to Greenhaven. I finished my first semester for my AA degree. And then I was paroled. That's another whole story. I never made parole before. I'll tell you that story is interesting, but, uh, and I we could always have you back by the way. And, well, you know, they, they said to me when I went to the parole board, we're going to give you parole this time. You got to go into a live-in residential treatment program. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, not going to happen. Never going to happen. Why was that? You you knew you I were going to school now. I'm headed in the right direction. I'm getting uh, three days. Now you want to take me out of school and you want to put me in a program? Right. You're kidding me, right? You know what? One of the commissioners fought like hell. The other one said, fuck them, leave them in jail. One of them fought like hell and got me a parole date. Wow. <laughs> You're I mean, that's great. So you ultimately no, what I learned was that you need to be true to your feelings, who you are. When you start becoming someone who you're not, then you just become, you know, you mimic what's going on around you. You have right. to sit down and find your own soul. You know, what do you want to be? What do you really want to do? What do you really want to be in life? And and that is it realistic? And how do you approach it? It doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to be a lawyer or a doctor. It doesn't matter as long as what you're doing brings you pleasure. Even if it's hard work. Sure. It has to bring you pleasure. It has to make you feel good about yourself. I, I love what you're saying because um, while I certainly haven't had your life, I have had the experience of chasing things that didn't bring me joy and then ultimately realizing that the things that I liked were the things worth pursuing you know, Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power of Myth and was a philosopher and a professor, said, follow your bliss. And I think that's very similar to what you're talking about. You find something inside of you that speaks to you, which clearly is what happened for you. Did you, when you got your associate's degree, did you go, okay, now you said- no, I'm not no, I got my, my associate's degree and I immediately applied to NYU for a BA. Mm -hmm. And I got into their- uh, at the time, it was 
different, it was called a different name, a continuing education program. So I took 10 credits a night. I worked a full-time job for three years. Wow. I did an undergraduate thesis. Ramsey Clark was my tutor, my mentor on my, on my thesis. I did a comparative study of slavery and prisons to show that the slave code and the prison code is almost identical. Can you just explain who Ramsey Clark is for people since that's a name from Ramsey the past? Clark, yeah, was a, was a, uh, attorney general of the United States under the Johnson, uh, no, under, under his brother's administration, no? Um, wasn't he? No, it was Johnson, under the Johnson administration. His father was a, a Supreme Court justice of the United States. Right, and he lost his job when Nixon became president. And for I don't know if you've seen this on Netflix, uh, but there's a movie that was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, the Chicago Seven. Chicago Seven? I saw and, that one. Right, and Ramsey Clark comes in at the end, if I'm not mistaken, and they try to get him to testify about how all of the shenanigans that were going on were political and had nothing to do with any real criminality. And the crazy judge wouldn't let that testimony in. I, by the way, I strongly recommend that movie to everyone. Oh yeah, it was great. It was great movie. And what's amazing is there's, that's accurate, an accurate portrayal of the trial. They chained a human being to his chair. They gagged him. The rulings, which you and I, I, I'm, I don't know, I wasn't with you. I was watching that movie as an attorney with 30 years of experience, dumbfounded that that could happen. But And I, I did my research after it and found out it absolutely happened that way, which is a horror show. But anyway, um, that's incredible you had Ramsey Clark as a professor. Uh, well, he was a good friend. Ramsey became a good friend. Uh, and actually, I, 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 he used to send me cases all the time. <laughs> Criminal that he didn't want because he was doing international law. Wow. Well, I, I mean, he recently passed away. And he did a beautiful interview uh, years ago about his connection to me. Alan, you and I are going to have to have a part two because I, I can already see I got like 20 minutes left with you and I barely scratched the surface, but I want to get to the point which I'm confused about. Every time I've, I applied to law school, obviously attended and, and graduated, and I remember being asked about a criminal history as well as when I applied for and was admitted to three separate states, actually one state and two commonwealths, but uh, to practice law in those places, they always ask you about your criminal record. And I always assumed that if you had a substantial criminal record, you were not going to be able to take or pass or be admitted to the bar. And I've since discovered that's inaccurate. Can you talk to us about what your experience was like having a significant felony record and still becoming a member of the bar in New York? It was not easy, and I never knew whether or not I would ever be successful uh, at becoming a lawyer. But I felt that the training couldn't do me any harm, and I didn't have a profession that I wanted to be involved in, other than I was I was working with these not-for-profit, you know, programs with kids, and I did love that work. But the reality is, you can't earn a living on those jobs. You should, by the way, they should get paid three times the amount of money, you know, for the work they do. Absolutely. When I was on parole and I was doing that kind of work, my PO used to tell me, if I catch you out at night, you know, you're going to be violated. And I used to say, fuck you. That's what I do for a living. Violate me. I want to see if they're going to put me in jail for helping a client. 
violate me. Don't fucking tell me I can't do it. That's my job. <laughs> I assume know, you never did. They did not like my attitude. My attitude was, look, I'm doing the right thing. You should help me do the right thing. Don't try to push me over the other way because you think that's where I belong. You know, when I first reported in New York, the guys were brutal. You know, they told me, uh, you don't believe that you're straight, you're, you're full of shit. I said, yeah, meanwhile, I got straight A's. I think I graduated with a 4.9, 3.9 average as an undergraduate, you know, because I worked hard, not because I was smart. I busted my ass to make sure I learned the material, you know. Right. I had no social life. I went to school and I worked, you know. Uh, and, and when you're willing to do that, you know what? There is a payoff. Right. There is uh, a payoff. So, so you end so anyway, up. I was saying difficulty. Some of the people that were involved in prepping me for this are responsible, I think, for the outcome. Susan Thomas is, I don't know if you know who Susan is. She was a managing partner at Wilkie Farm uh, and very uh-huh. close to the Clintons and had access to the White House. And, you know, she was married to my brother in law at the time. I was married to a woman that was a judge. I uh-huh. helped uh, run her campaign and I helped her get elected as a judge she was a lawyer when i met her mm-hmm. uh you know and i was in law school at the time and i was involved in the democratic committee uh you may remember the uh the dems down in the village they had the old Koch club and they had another club they had two clubs down there yeah the village and the democrats and i was involved with them and they were very political and very strong mm-hmm. and ultimately i was on the judicial committee i nominated my wife for a seat and she ultimately got one i mean everybody knew her right you know, she had written a woman on uh, women's rights, you know, women, money, and power with Phyllis Ch- uh, Chesley, I think. She was a very well-known lefty kind of lawyer, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but it's not easy to become a judge in New York. I'm tired. Yeah, she, I'm no. sure she helped people. Uh, I know someone who's going through that process and um, actually assisted them as well. It's a tremendous amount of work to try to become a judge in New York. Um, yeah. But... Uh, you ultimately decided, not knowing whether you were going to be allowed to be admitted to the bar, you still went for three years of law school. Did you do three or four? I did. It's, it's three. But my preparation was really well done. I mean, I was married to a woman that knew most of the judges on the appellate division. Right. All right. She did appeals. She was known as a good writer. Fabulous writer. Not me. She. <laughs> All right. Uh, really got really when she became a judge, I don't know, maybe once or twice in her co- entire career got reversed. Mm-hmm. Very small woman. That's hard, by you the know, way, for people uh, listening. And, and unusual. And, Sorry. The, the bottom line is that if people don't open doors for you, you can't accomplish anything. I don't care how good you are, or how small you are. That's the you're, bottom line. You're and a believer. If people in aren't willing to open their hearts and open their doors. People aren't going to change. That's the bottom line. And I tell people, you know, that I work with, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to have a track record before, you know, you fucked up your life. People aren't going to trust you for a while. But after a while, they're going to see you're on the dime and they're going to believe in you and they're going to want to be involved in your good health. That's the way it works. That's life. So Uh, the thing with me, the major thing about me is about dealing with anxiety. For me, anxiety is the is the button that creates addiction. And if you can learn how to cope with anxiety in a healthy way, 
you can you'll never ever be addicted again in your life ever never so just so i'm clear you're saying uh your addictions were a result of self-medicating over your anxiety would that be accurate it, it was a result of recognizing that my feeling of addiction that i got in the pit of my stomach i always used to relate to my being a uh born an addict that was a craving that was part of my being i didn't understand that that had nothing to do with addiction everyone has anxiety but we're all taught to deal with anxiety differently some people are never taught how to deal with anxiety and that's the whole fucked up underclass of our society right but if you look at when i got out of jail i didn't know how to order in a restaurant i didn't know how to talk to a normal person my ex-wife taught me how to do all that. She said to me, one time I went to a, a lawyer lefty thing and I couldn't talk to lawyers. And I said, you know, I don't know, what do I say to these people? I don't have anything in common with them. She said to me, what you do is ask them what they do for a living. Let them talk about themselves. Mm. They will think you are the best conversationalist in the world and they will never forget who you are. Yeah, that's a Dale, a Dale Carnegie teaches that in their Dale Carnegie course. People love to talk about themselves and get them going. It's a great, not as a manipulation, but also as a way to let people express themselves. You know, I think that's a great thing. Exactly. And then you'll pick up on the conversation and it goes somewhere rather than saying, you know, what do I ask them? Just ask them what they do. People love to talk about what they do. <laughs> so that got me through that crisis, you know, but then there were other things. I didn't know how to order in a restaurant. I had to overcome that. I had to face it. I had to look it in the eye, understand that it was an issue and come up with a plan to deal with it or modify it. Do you still occasionally get anxious and you just manage it differently? Oh, I get anxious and, and occasionally I get crazy. You know, my old jailhouse shit comes back and I have to apologize profusely to my current wife, who is a, you know, a major, major high end doctor. When, when uh, it sounds to me, though, that like that is a I mean, rare, international, well-known international. It sounds like that's a rare occurrence, though. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, it, it happens because, and, and, you know, as I explained to my wife a long time ago, she helps me deal with it now. But the reality is, is I only survived because of that mechanism. I would not have made it through that, those years in jail. They were brutal. There were race riots. It was, you know, there was no integration. Everything was segregated when I went to jail. White folks and black folks didn't play baseball together. They didn't play basketball together. They didn't talk. They didn't hang out together. If you did, you were ostracized. You know, and I had to deal with stuff like that in jail because I had Hispanic friends that I liked that I wasn't going to disrespect. What's it been? You know, uh, and I had black friends that I had tremendous respect for that, that, you know, over the years were tremendously helpful to me. So I was coming from a different place. It must be strange to be going through the times we've gone through during the pandemic to have all of the racial issues we're still dealing with kind of thrust uh, to center stage. And also some of the crazy political nonsense that we've been dealing with. Has that been shocking to you as it has been to me? Never. Uh, the reality is, is I always knew that there was a, 
underclass of people closeted that were bigots and racists and sexists and that's what their nature was and it was never going to change. The only reason we weren't seeing it is because no one was encouraging their visibility. Then along comes Donald and they all come out of the woodwork and they're still there. They'll always be there. But you know what? I have faith in people. I think that there are more good people in this country than selfish, bigot, you know, racist people. I think there are more good people in this world and I think their instincts are good. And I think as long as we continue to nurture that, they can't win. Demographically, it's over. I mean, we're seeing uh, one particular party trying to keep other people from voting. Uh, that's virtually uh, they're, they're going to be overcome whether they like it or not. I mean, they can do every little thing they can. And, and you know what? The Dems are working more and more trying to say, OK, do it. We're still going to overcome it. So you can't allow them to do that shit. We got to step up to the plate and deal with it. I, I like that you say you have faith in it, because I have to be honest, I after speaking with you for about an hour, I think that you have uh, a keener sense of certain things than most people because you- I called every single election state that Biden won. Every single one. <laughs> you think that is? My friend says he doesn't believe it. All I do is watch, you know, I watch right wing, left wing, middle ring. I watch everything. And I could see that most of the people that were supporting Donald Trump were either ignorant or wealthy and had a stake in the outcome. Ignorance, my friends, my Italian friends, they think Donald Trump is wonderful. I said, tell me one thing that he's ever done for you. And he'd throw you under the bus in a minute. He'd be a rat in a minute. How could you want to support a guy like that? <laughs> I I, it's like Staten Island is like the capital of Trump, Trumptania or whatever. I don't understand that. Those, there's a lot of hardworking. Oh, the old wise guys live in Staten Island. They love him. Are you kidding me? You know why? Because he acts like them. He's got their demeanor. He's got their affect. He uses their language. They love him. Gotcha. Gotcha. So <laughs> as I'm, and, but if you ask them one thing that he's done for them, they can't name it. <laughs> he's done yeah. nothing for them. <laughs> They can't name it. So but, you know, look, it, 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 but I I am very politically informed. I watch and listen to everything. Can I change anything? No. If I was allowed to run for office, I would have. I'm not allowed. I'm barred from it because of my record. Because I think what's going on is outrageous. Yeah. Outrageous that people can get away with what they're getting away with. I mean, I, it just blows my mind. Same. So. Uh... I just want to talk a little bit about your legal career when you first found yourself going into court, but this time at the defendant's table, but not as a defendant. What was that like? That was incredible. I mean, I mean, I remember when I got admitted, I was standing outside of the appellate division first department and looking up at the building and just shaking my head. Like, how did this ever happen? You know, I remembered myself in a cell with guys shooting up and, how did this happen, you know? And it's, it was all about this one woman that gave me humanity. Looked at me like a human being for a moment in time, changed my life. I feel like that's the biggest takeaway of this conversation, even though I think you're amazing, you're entertaining, you're brilliant. I, I appreciate you giving your time. 
But ultimately, I feel like it's that woman and your experience of her that the fact that we don't know who we might affect by who we are and by giving of ourselves to people, I think that's an amazing message of this conversation. It seems to me like you've looked for places to give. You know, you've helped people. You've looked, you've seen what you can do for other people. It's not about you trying to get over on somebody. And um, it feels to me, is that an accurate way of looking at it? Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I think that I have a realistic approach about how to deal with mostly addiction, but mostly anxiety. I mean, it's not, it's about anyone that, that, that uses any kind of substance in order to make them feel better. The substance, you know, it, it just makes no sense. It's crazy, especially, and when you have self-respect and self-esteem and you go to work in the morning with a job that you like, that you take pride in. You know, I remember when I was a young kid, I worked in a, a, a grocery store associated on West Side of Broadway. And the guy that ran the place was a guy named Nat Barrett. He was a manager. And I was a kid, I was making a dollar an hour. I was working 60 hours a week. I thought I was rich, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and one day uh, when I went there, I used to deliver orders, that's all. And then one day he came, he said, look, I want to make you a permanent staff, but I want to try you out first. But down in the basement, there's a lot of bottles and cases and stuff and clean it up and come back up and let me know when it's done. So I went downstairs and I worked my ass off and I stacked everything and ran upstairs really fast to let him know, yeah, look how good I am, right? Yeah. He went downstairs and he looked at everything and gazed around and he looked at me and he said, when a job is once begun, never leave it till it's done. Be it big or be it small, do it right or not at all. Do it over. <laughs> uh, wow, it's amazing that stuck with you. And that's true. And now I take pride in anything I do. If to, I, I'm a big gardener. My gardens are beautiful. I mean, this place is like a like a park. Wow. We have 12 acres and probably have developed about six or seven and I've got gardens that are blow your mind all over the property. Everywhere you work, there's a new surprise. Wow. You know, and I love doing it, but it's because when you like to do something, you want to do it right. Yeah. And I can tell that what you do is a reflection of who you are. Alan Habert, thank you so much for spending time with me on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate uh, talking to people because I think it's important to talk, you know, and I, and one of my biggest beefs today is that we're not having conversations about dealing with the opiate crisis in this country. We're not. We're throwing money at it. We just threw, I think, $8 billion at the opiate crisis and probably the majority of that money is going to shrinks, counselors, drug treatment programs. <laughs> That's where it's going. I'm going to have you back to talk about that because there's a lot to talk about. But thank you, at least for this round. Thanks, Alan Pickra. I really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That was Alan Haber. I got to tell you, he's got one of the most interesting and unusual life stories of anyone that I've ever spoken to. 
and there's a lot of great lessons in there. Look, I'm sorry about the sound today. Um, we're dealing with it. It'll be better next time, fingers crossed. But in the meantime, please wear a mask, get vaccinated, take care of yourself and take care of others. Uh, go get some dumplings. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and that you give it a rating. You know, you can find this podcast everywhere. I don't know how you stumbled upon it, but thank you for listening. And if you have any questions, want to talk to me or leave me any messages, go to isthatreallylegal.com and I will happily respond. In the meantime, take care of yourself, be well, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.